We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. So Tucker isn't really fooling anybody with this. You know, he went to a grocery store and said, oh my God, they've got this little technology on the cart. And like American grocery stores had that in the 1970s. It's because he's never goes to a grocery store. He hires people to do all his grocery shopping for him. So he, know, he doesn't actually know what an American grocery store is like. Maybe he knew when he was a kid. I don't know. But it, it rang really false. Tucker was just, it's like, oh my God, this beautiful stuff. And he's, he's going, and it doesn't look that beautiful. Have you ever seen the comedy routine called The Machine? So an American frat boy goes to Russia to party in the 90s. And he hangs out and he meets some Russian mafia guys and starts drinking with them. And they're like, okay, you're in our group. You're with us. He says, I'm The Machine. Like, and, and they call him The Machine. And then together they go around robbing trains. And they become train robbers. And then when he's done with it, he just walks away. Right? He, he doesn't stay in the Russian mafia. He just joins it and walks away. They're like these bandits, right? It's the old Russian mafia was much more traditional. You had to be part of the family. You get the tattoos and all the stuff. It was like the Yakuza or the Cosa Nostra or whatever. But then the, uh, the, the bandits in the 90s, they called, you could call them mafia, but really they're just gangs, right? So he joined a Russian gang and he robbed trains as his frat boy. And then he went back and like did a stand up comedy routine about it. And it's freaking hilarious. If you think you know how important drones are going to be to the future of warfare, you're wrong. They're more. However important you think they're going to be, they're much more than you think they're going to be. Welcome to Econ 102, where economist Noah Smith and I make sense of what's happening in the news, technology, business, and beyond through the lens of economics. Let's jump right in. Well, shall we, uh, shall we get into it with Russia? Let's do it. Starting with Tucker's interview of Putin, there's been a lot of conversation about Russia. Maybe you could start with initial reactions fr from the interview. What did you take from it? Definitely this interview clarified Putin's sort of foreign policy thinking, how he thinks about Russian power and influence and what he sees as the primary threats. I learned a lot from that interview, actually. No thanks to Tucker. Tucker wanted Putin, basically Tucker seemed to show up expecting Putin to kind of echo the talking points that that Russia has disseminated to its friends in the West, you know, about why he invaded Ukraine. You know, if you talk to people in the West, like Mearsheimer, who buy into Russian narratives, they say this was about NATO, NATO expansion and stuff like that. And in fact, I think it was, but not in the way that, that you know, Mearsheimer or these other people think. Tucker wanted him to talk about that. Instead, he just talked about the history of Russia and Poland. And he just kept talking about Poland, especially the 1600s, in which there was a lot of conflict between Russia and Poland. Poland invaded Russia. Uh, Russia then counter-invaded Poland and took over part of it. And then over the next century, took over the rest of Poland. And basically, Russia dominated Poland and then ruled it for about 100 years. Then Poland broke free. Then the Soviet Union kind of de facto dominated Poland. Anyway, so there's been all this conflict of like, Russia usually trying to dominate Poland and occasionally Poland taking advantage of Russian chaos to, to attack them. And that's what Putin talked about again and again. And so that made me realize that Poland is really the key to all of this. And that, you know, we always talk about Russia being afraid of European influence in Ukraine and, and being afraid of Ukraine creating its own independent identity. And while I think that's true, I think that the piece that goes undiscussed 
is that sort of Russian imperialists, neo-imperialists who are big into this imperial history, like Putin is, really think a lot about rivalry in Ukraine with Poland, Russo-Polish rivalry to control Ukraine. So if you look at the west of Ukraine, which is where uh, my mom's family is from, actually, interestingly, when you look at the west of Ukraine, it speaks all Ukrainian, right, and is culturally close to Poland, and it's geographically close to Poland. The Ukrainian language, which is becoming more and more ubiquitous in Ukraine as Russian is getting falling out of favor, obviously. The Ukrainian language is basically a mashup of Russian and Polish. It's kind of Polish grammar, Russian vocabulary, something like that. To the degree where some Russian soldiers, when they found some Polish weapons in Ukraine and they saw the Polish written on it, they thought it was Ukrainian written in Roman letters. They're like, whoa, they, they invented a new form of Ukrainian written in Roman letters. No, it's Polish. And of course, Putin knows that, you know, Ukraine is sort of culturally and linguistically kind of between Russia and Poland and geographically, obviously. And so that was what was interesting to me. It showed that Poland is a big deal in Putin's mind. Right. You mentioned that this is different from how sort of Mearsheimer thinks about it and Mearsheimer is sort of representing a certain school of foreign policy. Can you outline his perspective on the region and, and why you think it's incorrect? So basically, Mearsheimer and a lot of friends of Russia in the West, including our old friend David Sachs, they think that Russia was worried that NATO would expand to Ukraine. And that is why Russia invaded in order to preclude this, in order to basically stop NATO from expanding to Ukraine, which would have put NATO troops or bases on Russia's border, even though they already are, but more. And uh, the idea that this was a threat. So many people have debunked this. It's almost not even worth debunking again. But basically, NATO con continually rejected Ukraine's pleas to be led into the alliance and basically just said, no, shut up, go away. America had effectively conceded Ukraine as part of Russia's sphere of influence before Russia invaded, and now is sort of rethinking that rapidly. So, so the Mearsheimer perspective actually won out until the invasion. And so NATO basically dismissed Ukraine and said, okay, no, goodbye, we're not doing this. But NATO expanded in the 90s and early 2000s. So that's 20 years ago, right? NATO expansion happened during a short time window 20 years ago, around the turn of the century. And the most important country that was admitted to NATO was Poland. NATO expansion, you know, of course, there's the Baltics, which are important because they're geographically located near to Russia. You know, Estonia has a bunch of Russian speakers in it. You know, that was kind of, and it's under on the Baltic Sea, which is Russia's sea access. So, so the Baltic country NATO expansion was important, but more important was Poland. But that was the main additional ally that NATO expansion added. Like the Baltics don't add much to NATO except for intelligence capabilities, they can spy on Russia a little bit, right? But then they don't, they're tiny. They're really tiny. Finland adds a lot to NATO, so that's good. It's, and Sweden. Those countries, which joined re very recently after the Russian invasion, as a reaction to the Russian invasion, those countries actually do add a lot to NATO. But before that, the big NATO expansion was to Poland in 1999. You know, that was the year Putin came to power in Russia. And letting, so, so Poland had traditionally been either a rival of Russia in the 1600s or a colony of Russia, basically in the 1700s and, uh, and 1800s. Russia invested a lot of resources in keeping Poland down during when the Soviet Union took over. It's had, so, so remember that the um, World War II started because the Soviets and the Nazis made a pact to divide up Poland between them. And so the Soviets took the east part of Poland and the Nazis took the west part of Poland. 
And that was the invasion that began World War II. And notice that Britain and France declared war on the Nazis, but not on the Soviets, even though they also had invaded their treaty ally. And so, so anyway, Poland was then carved up again by the Soviets and the Nazis. And the Soviets immediately went to work destroying the Polish intelligentsia. They, so they rounded up and killed the smart people. And all the politically active people, the, the intellectuals, blah, 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 which is exactly what they're doing in the occupied parts of Ukraine. The idea is then if we kill the smart Polish people, then the remainder of the Polish people will just be dumb sort of serfs that we can control easily. And Timothy Snyder chronicles this in the book Bloodlands. Of course, in the end, the Nazis came and just started slaughtering Polish people en masse and blah, 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 and just started slaughtering Slavic people. And they had this mad dream of like killing all the Slavs and repopulating all of, uh, you know, Central Asia with Germans. And they had this insane dream of genocide, which they went toward carrying out. But at the beginning, really, Poland was brutalized by Russia. The eastern part of Poland was brutalized by Russia. And they wanted to make the Poles like a subject race and a subject people. The Soviet Union also tried to conquer Poland in 1921 and failed. Or 1920, 2021, and, and was kicked out. That was under Lenin. The Soviet Union was briefly pretty expansionist. And then, of course, after World War II, Poland became this client state of Russia, of the Soviet Union, but of really of Russia, and only broke free in the 80s with the solidarity movement and stuff like that. And so then Poland was like, okay, we're never going back to being ruled by Russia. We are never going back. So some Polish people started talking about developing nuclear weapons. Lech Walesa, who was the head of the solidarity movement, he was sort of the main kind of rebel who gained Poland its de facto independence from Russia uh, in the 80s. He basically said, Poland is going to need nukes. And America was all about preventing nuclear proliferation in the 90s. We were all about preventing that. So we were like, okay, we're going to let you into the club instead. You'll be under our nuclear umbrella. You'll be under our defensive umbrella. And at that point, America looked very powerful. That guarantee looked like a really good guarantee. And so Poland said, okay, we'll be in NATO instead. So Poland joined NATO in 99. That, I'm now pretty sure after watching Putin, that was actually really important to, to Russia's decision to to invade Ukraine. The other piece of this, by the way, is that Poland recovered economically. So Poland under communism was kept down. The Soviets diverted resources away from Poland and Poland was poorer than Russia. It was poorer than most of the sort of Eastern Bloc. It was especially poor. But after gaining de facto independence from the Soviet Union and the fall of communism, Poland just zoomed. Poland took tons of FDI from Germany. Germany invested in Poland like crazy. They built tons of manufacturing. And so Poland is now considerably richer than Russia or the, most of the rest of the Eastern Bloc and is more on a par with like the Baltics. And it's pretty much, I would say Poland is now a developed country. So Poland is like quite rich and it's, it has manufacturing capability, et cetera, et cetera. And so Poland basically revived. Joining the West allowed Poland to experience this revival for the first time since the 1600s after being sort of kept under the Russian boot hill for, I don't know, 250 years or more. It really revived. And this was terrifying to Putin, I think, because the, Russia's old rival was suddenly powerful. And so we kept talking about the Polonization of Ukraine and how we, Russia has to save Ukraine from Polonization. I think that drove Putin's uh, invasion a lot more than I had realized heretofore. And so and what is the concern if, if, about Polonization? Like, what, what is he actually concerned about? Oh, so the idea is that Poland will dominate Ukraine and will basically, Poland will become the hegemon of East Europe, the Baltic countries, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, Moldova, which was a Soviet Republic, Romania, and of course, the other countries like Czechoslovakia, whatever. But 
I don't think he's even thinking about that. I think he's thinking about Belarus. Belarus the Belarusian language is also between Russian and Polish. And so the idea that Russia's sort of sphere of influence would be continually eroded by Polish cultural power and economic success and military backing, I think is, is terrifying. Is that unfounded? No, that's founded. He's right. He's right. He is absolutely right. So he's not right that Ukraine was going to join NATO. That was never true. That's what Mearsheimer at all talk about. But he is absolutely right that when people in Ukraine and in Belarus and in Moldova and look at Russia versus Poland and say, which of these countries would I rather be? This sort of dysfunctional petrostate or this flourishing westernized manufacturing power, you know, with these nice new cities and these nice new companies and where everyone's getting richer, which would I rather be like? Well, Poland, <laughs> that's not a hard choice. And, and of course, the rest of this episode, we're going to talk about how Russia sucks and Tucker Carlson's little Potemkin trip to Russia. But the preview is that Poland is great. Poland rocks and it's doing so well. And the other piece, another piece of this that I think is not often talked about is that Poland is more traditional than Russia. Poland did never really gave up Catholicism in the way Russia gave up Eastern Orthodox stuff during communism, because communism was really imposed from outside instead of domestically developed. And so Poland is still, you know, the most religious country in East Europe by far. And in Europe, they're the most religious country in Europe. And they... Why is that important? Because after the fall of communism, there needs to be an ideological thing knitting society together, right? And Putin had this idea that, that Eastern Orthodoxy was going to come back and help. So he made friends with slash bribed the head of the Eastern Orthodox Church, the patriarch of... St. Petersburg or Moscow, I knew they, whoever the head of the Eastern Orthodox Church is, he always goes and blesses the troops and blah, blah, blah. So Putin made friends with the Eastern Orthodox Church, but the problem is Russians didn't bite. Russians didn't start going to church again, like a, a very small amount. Church attendance went up to 13%. So that's like not nothing. But the idea that now that we're post-communist, no one's really thinking of bringing communism back as an ideology, as a thing that knits. Communism is effectively a religion and it drove out other religions. But Poland never gave up its Christianity and its Catholicism. And note, by the way, that Catholicism, that Poland is pretty much Catholic and the Catholic Church was a rival of the Eastern Orthodox Church. So that was a, another divide, a religious schism there. So Polish society seems in some way healthier to Putin than Russian society because they're more religious, they're more traditional, more traditional families. A lot of the sort of social breakdown you saw, they don't have nearly the crime, nearly the alcoholism. Poland is a healthy, traditional society in many ways that Russia is not. And I think that scared Putin because his sales pitch of his own brand of nationalism was, we're going to be a Christian society again. We're going to be a healthy society where people get married. And the whole anti-gay thing was part of that. There's this weird idea that beating up gay people will somehow make your society more traditional. It will not. I think mean, there's homophobia in Poland too, but it's a bit like the cart before the horse, right? Like maybe traditional societies tend to be homophobic. But being homophobic won't make your society traditional, right? You can't just beat up the gays and then like people, like straight people start getting married again. That doesn't work. And so then that's, sorry, guys, that's not how it works. It's a cargo cult, right? You know cargo cults? I know the name, but can you explain more about it? Right. So in, the, in World War II, the U.S. went to all these tiny little Pacific islands and sort of put little airstrips there so they could airlift supplies fighting against Japan. And the native people there, they gave a whole bunch of extra stuff to the native people there. And the native people were like, wow, stuff, which they called cargo. Cargo was like wealth. And it's like, whoa, these guys are bringing in stuff. And so then they left uh, the Americans like, okay, we're done, bye. 
and then they left. And so then in, on a couple of these islands, they, people came back after a few years and found that people had built mock airstrips there and made a, a, a religion like a little new culty religion around sort of mock air traffic controllers and mocked up airplanes, hoping that the cargo would return. Of course, it eventually actually did because then we globalized and had ships come there and they have the internet now. And, and so the cargo did eventually return, but it wasn't because they built a mock airstrip. So it's the idea of pushing on a string. It's the idea of taking something that's downstream of a cause and thinking that you can just press on that and you can get the root cause there, but you can't. So like, yeah, traditional societies are going to be, unfortunately, tend to be homophobic, but being homophobic, just intentionally making yourself homophobic won't make your society more traditional. And I think that's what Russia doesn't understand. Are there any other lessons to take from Poland's economic success? Do they do something unique that's worth mentioning? Absolutely. There's FDI is the main lesson here. Foreign direct investment. So during the 90s and early 2000s, a number of sort of development economists who were more on the industrial side, they were like, industrial policy is good, but you have to develop your own domestic industries. You've got to be like Korea and build your own homegrown car industry, homegrown electronics industry. Don't use foreign brands, right? Don't just be a platform for making stuff for foreign brands. That turned out to not be nearly as true as they thought. So Poland and Hungary and, some, and like Malaysia and countries like this and Turkey. To, to an increasing extent, have succeeded at industrializing based on FDI. And of course, smaller countries like Ireland and Singapore already did this. Singapore's entire economy is American. People at Singapore are so rich. Name a Singaporean company, Temasek, right? There, it's a holding company for a bunch of like local stuff. Like nobody buys a Singaporean brand, right? Like name an Irish brand. No, you can't. But Ireland is richer than almost any country in the EU because they have FDI, because Ireland's economy is entirely American. And Singapore's economy is entirely American. We just built stuff there because Ireland's the gateway to Europe and Singapore's the gateway to like Southeast Asia and, and was the gateway to China. So the issue here is that FDI actually works for small countries. The problem is that they're small, right? So the question is, can FDI work for bigger companies? So Poland has maybe 38 million people-ish, Malaysia, 35, something like that. These are medium-sized countries, right? These are not tiny countries. Maybe small to medium, you know, they're not as big as like France, but they're not like, they're not like Singapore. So the, the thing is, it turns out FDI works really well for a country in the 30 to 40 million people range. And that was not uh, realized. That was not known before. And Poland has really taught us that. Manufacturing is still effective. So Poland has taught us that. Some economists are going around saying that as we talk, about our previous episode, saying that manufacturing is dead. But Poland shows, no, it's really not. Poland is where German stuff was made. Poland also taught us that institutions matter. So Poland underwent a lot of institutional change in order to join the EU. So basically, Poland had been a pretty corrupt country. And then to, in order to join the EU, they had to get rid of a lot of the old Soviet era institutions, a lot of the old Eastern Bloc institutions, Soviet inspired, because so, they were never part of the Soviet Union. They had to get rid of a lot of these institutions that made them corrupt, right? Basically things that would hand all the contracts to favored government people and blah, blah, blah. And all the legacies of central planning that in practice furnished corruption during and then after the Cold War. And so those are the lessons of Poland. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Got it. Okay, so now let's transition to Russia. Tucker, after the interview, goes around, starts spending time in, in, in Russia, commenting on, on, on what he's seeing at the time Moscow, I believe, 
Why don't you unpack what, what happened there in your reaction? There is a long history of Westerners going to Russia and saying, oh my God, it's so much better. And they've always been full of shit. If you've ever heard the, the adjective Potemkin, meaning sort of a fake show project, this, that actually comes from Russia. This actually comes from one of these uh, situations. They built uh, these villages, Potemkin villages, which are basically fake villages to show people how fast Russia was industrializing and how successful they were. And they'd walk Westerners through the Potemkin villages and they'd be like, whoa, it's amazing. And then like, it wasn't, it wasn't amazing because those are fake. The irony is that Russia actually was industrializing really fast. It just didn't look like that. Like industrialization first makes you look grungy for like the first half of it and then makes you look rich after the first half. And Russia was still in the grungy part, but they wanted to show people like, well, look, we look rich. We look great. And so they did that. And then, so they, that was there during the Soviet times, lots of leftist intellectuals, George Bernard Shaw, people like that went to Russia and said, wow, the Soviet Union's building the future. And a few people believed it, but most people didn't really believe it. it was, they, they realized, okay, you're getting rolled, right? This is bullshit. Tucker is in that vein, right? So Russia animates the rightist imagination for a number of reasons. The first is that rightists, I'm going to be honest here, rightists think of Russia as a homogeneous white society. It is not. Russia spans much of Asia. Russia has a lot of Asian people. Russia has a lot of Muslims. It has regions where everyone's a Muslim. I mean, okay, Muslims look white, but we've decided that Muslims are not white. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so it has Chechnya, Dagestan, places like that where we would call the people brown, even though racially they're actually white. But it has lots of Muslims and it has lots of people that just don't look white at all. It has people like Saka people and whoever, um, Siberian types. And you go to this Russian cities that are near to Europe and those are a lot more white. So you go to those cities and it's like, wow, it's a bunch of white people. Like this is what they imagine American cities would look like if we hadn't desegregated and let black people into the cities. And then if we hadn't had like the Im big recent immigration wave from Latin America and Asia. And so that they sort of imagine that's Russia's our alternate alternative America. That's one thing. Also, Putin has tried to promote traditionalism, which involves, yeah, it involves going and beating up gay people and imprisoning them. But then also it involves claiming that the church is on their side, even though Russians don't, are actually very, still very irreligious and don't really go to church and don't really, and the divorce rate's incredibly high. And Russia's this very dysfunctional post-communist society still, but the rhetoric impressed the American right. The idea that he said, we're a Christian country, you know, he said this and this, and he got the patriarch to come bless the troops and all that stuff. That, those optics made an impression on the right. So there's this idea that if we were a Christian nationalist nation, if we respected white people, Christianity, traditionalism, and all these things, that we'd be a powerful nation. And so Russia obviously is a powerful nation, uh, despite their massive struggles in Ukraine and their economic weakness. They're still a very powerful nation. And this idea that this idea in some rightist minds that if we simply adhere to tradition racially and religiously, we would be a powerful nation like this. I think that that's the romance of Russia really. And you get all these rightist people online doing things like, here's the Russian subway. Notice anything? I mean, there's nothing to notice. So I assume they mean that the people on in that video are pretty much white people. You know, if Russia has a really nice subway because it's inherited from the Soviet Union. Communists built that subway. They built it to look very nice. They built it to impress foreigners and as a monument, things like that. And so the subway looks really nice. Above ground, Russia looks terrible. 
it just does not look well. It does not look good. Even beautiful views of Moscow videos and stuff like that. Even that, that's not what, like, they looks like crap, right? You've got a few, this small area of gleaming skyscrapers that looks like downtown Dallas, right? It looks like downtown Dallas or Houston. You've got like this small number of skyscrapers and they're like kind of modern looking, but they're kind of boxy, kind of boring. But then there's just a few of them, right? There's a tiny area of towers. Beyond that, it's just a bunch of like blank, like Soviet apartment blocks. These grim Easter, old Eastern block crumbling tenements. These look just drab and awful. And then the like vacant lots in the, like Detroit. A lot of large swaths of Moscow look like Detroit. You can look on Google Earth. You can look at walking tours. You can look at aerial footage. You can see what Moscow looks like. And it looks like, a lot of it looks like Cabrini Green, the old public housing project in Chicago or Detroit, modern Detroit. Russia never, like its income officially recovered from the bad days of the 90s, the post-communist, post-Soviet uh, chaos. It recovered, its income recovered, but its built environment and its society never really fully recovered from that. And so you can look at this, Tucker saying Russia looks so great, it doesn't, right? You can go around to a few monuments and museums and expensive stuff. It doesn't look great. It looks like crap. I'm not saying American cities look great. A lot of American cities look like crap too. And there's a lesson here for us. But if you compare Russian cities to like European cities, right? If you compare Russian cities to, I don't know, Copenhagen or Berlin, you know, which is a post-communist city that looks pretty nice or any, basically any city, Frankfurt, I don't know, or Warsaw, right? It just looks, the, the European cities look incomparably better. Kiev in Ukraine. Ukraine's a much poorer country than Russia, but Kiev looks nicer than Moscow. So Tucker isn't really fooling anybody with this. You know, he went to a grocery store and said, oh my God, they've got this little technology on the cart. And like American grocery stores had that in the 1970s. He's making shit up. It's because he never goes to a grocery store. He hires people to do all his grocery shopping for him. So he, know, he doesn't actually know what an American grocery store is like. Maybe he knew when he was a kid. I don't know. But it, it rang really false. Tucker was just... It's like, oh my God, this beautiful stuff. And he's, he's going, and it doesn't look that beautiful at all. Yeah. That's, yeah. Anyway. What separates post-communist societies or cities that were able to bounce back from ones that, that, that haven't? Why is there such a disparate outcomes? The main thing is EU affiliation, EU membership and, and growth. Being connected to the EU agglomeration, economic agglomeration was very healthy for the Baltics, for Czechia, Slovenia, Slovakia, Romania, all these countries that, that joined the EU and were able to focus on, get, get a bunch of FDI, especially from Germany, but also from the other European countries, and were able to focus on selling stuff to the EU. They joined this agglomeration and they were able to, they, that created broad-based wealth. Russia's economy revived somewhat. Russia is now poorer than Romania. Russia, by the way, Russia being poorer than Romania is a giant L for Russia. Wow. Like they didn't even look at Romania. They, they were like, Romania is just a untermenschen. You know, they're, they didn't even, like Poland was a threat and a rival. Romania was just trash. They didn't even focus on controlling Romania very hard. Romania they thought was trash. Nobody gave a shit about Romania. It's richer than Russia now. How? But the exact same thing I'm, that, that Poland did, did just not quite as... Yeah, join the EU. It sold stuff to the EU and it, it got investment from the EU and it reshaped its institutions to be more like the EU. So those are the three things you get from the EU. Better institutions, markets, and investment. That's it. What are the cons of the EU? Why is it controversial? 
Well, so the EU has a bunch of annoying regulations. Joining the Eurozone is different than joining the EU. Joining the Euro currency has many drawbacks because then you lose control over your independent monetary policy. And that, as we saw in the European financial crisis a decade ago, that's really bad for you. Like Greece found this out. They couldn't devalue their currency because they had no currency to devalue. So Greece really hit the skids and in Spain and Italy also had problems with this. And so the Euro is different than the EU. The EU itself can have burdensome and annoying regulations. So remember GDPR, you know that one, like yeah. Europe overregulates stuff. And so that's really bad. So far, that has not, that has affected a lot of tech industries and hasn't affected manufacturing industries as much. But if it does, that will be a big downside of the EU. So the EU could really shoot itself in the foot here and really take away a lot of the benefits that it conferred. So Romania is richer than Russia. Russia is not that rich. It's like, it's got $20,000 of per capita GDP. America's at 60. So Russia, large parts of Russia lack running water, indoor plumbing. Their heating systems were built in the Soviet Union and they're these centralized pipe systems that they haven't repaired very well that break down all the time and leave whole cities exposed to the Russian winter. And they're like frantically burning stuff to like keep warm and they're like in danger of freezing to death and blah, blah, blah. Like, I think something like 20% of Russian houses lack plumbing. That's crappy. That's crap. Sorry, you suck. Like, you know, people who go to Russia report a far more drab, precarious, impoverished material existence than even the aerial footage and walking tours of Moscow would, would represent. Moscow is much richer than the rest of Russia, and it still looks like crap. But the rest of Russia really looks like crap. It's crap. When was Russia at its economic peak relative to the rest of the world in terms of quality of life or GDP per capita relative to the rest of the world? That's hard to say. Well, probably relative to Western Europe, it was early days of the Soviet Union, like 50s and 60s. Russia, Soviet Union rebuilt very quickly while Britain really stagnated after the war. So you saw Britain and Russian GDP sort of approach each other and then diverge again. But then really it's hard, it's hard to say. It's hard to say when Russia was closest to the West. There was a brief burst of economic growth before World War I for like 10 years. 10 years. And that's one of the reasons Germany went to war with Russia, because they were scared that this economic growth meant Russia would pass them up. They might have been right. Not clear. But then really there, is, there has never been a time when Russia did like got particularly close to the West. It has never really caught up. It's always been kind of behind and it makes some of these big pushes, this big push for investment before World War I, this big push for rebuilding after World War II, and massive push for building factories that ultimately were not economical. Those are sort of the Russian revivals. And then the revival under Putin, Russian GDP has not grown since for a decade. Russian GDP is flat for a decade. I would say that around like 2010 or something like that, when the European Union was in crisis and took a big hit from the Euro crisis, 2010, 2011, Russia was really insulated from that and Russia's GDP hadn't yet stagnated. So they, I would say that that was probably the peak of Russian in recent times. I don't know about history, but in recent times, Russia's best years were when Europe really stumbled from the Great Recession and from the Euro crisis. Yeah. So because Putin talks a lot about Russian history in his interview, but at a much longer time frame, maybe let's talk a little bit about how we think about Putin's legacy in terms of Putin's overall sort of what he's done for the country relative to some of the leaders that were before him. 
Okay. Why don't you contextualize Putin a little bit in terms of Russia, maybe since World War II or something? Well, okay, Putin is the second leader since the end of communism, and he's a lot more effective than Yeltsin, who was basically just drunk and didn't do a lot. And just Russia just slipped into chaos. Putin partially revived Russia in a number of ways. Number one, he got oil exports going again, and he accepted a ton of imports. Imports are very important because Russia, the Soviet Union had stopped being able to make its own machinery. Russia's like, okay, we're going to buy German machinery. And now because of export controls, they're going to buy Chinese machinery. But they're like, okay, we'll import our machinery. We're not going to be the industrial superpower the Soviet Union hoped. We're going to import this stuff. And we're, what are we going to export? Oil and grain and then defense stuff. We still have some defense manufacturers that are pretty good. Like Sukhoi, the fighter company is good. They make, they make good airplanes and not as good as ours, but easily second best in the world. So they'll export that kind of stuff. They exported a bunch of tanks, although now they're not going to be able to do that anymore. They exported some artillery especially planes, Russia, Sukhoi and Mikoyan, the Russian jet companies, they know how to make a jet engine better than anyone in the world, except for like America and probably Germany. They have really good jet engine technology that the Chinese have been trying to steal for many decades and have been unable to steal. China's trying to rip off Russian jet fighters, but it's ripoffs are not nearly as good. Russia's really good in jet engines. So it exported some of that, but mostly it was oil. Mostly it was a little bit of grain, mostly it was oil and, uh, and gas. Remember it built all those pipelines to Europe. So Russia became a petrostate. It became a fossil fuel superpower and the fossil fuel revenue. Putin used this wisely in some ways. So Putin appointed people to the, to the central bank who refused to, who kept the currency pretty cheap, kept interest rates pretty high, kept inflation under control. They did wise macroeconomics and they prevented Russia from undergoing the kind of classic emerging market currency crisis that it had undergone in the 90s and that afflicts many resource exporting countries. So good macroeconomic stability. Putin took the revenues from oil and he effectively nationalized them by throwing some Russian oil oligarchs in jail and basically said, okay, I own you now. So he de facto nationalized much of the oil industry and gas industry or, or outright nationalized, which is fine. You know, like honestly, countries with nationalized oil and gas industry, that's, it's typically fine. It did mean they had to, they didn't really develop their own equipment and they had to import equipment, including from American drilling companies. So how do they don't really know how to drill now they used to, but now they don't. The Soviet union knew how to drill. The thing about the Soviet union was the Soviet union always tried to build its own machinery, right? It always tried to industry industry. That was the model of the Soviet Union. And they didn't do it very well, but they often did it serviceably enough that they could avoid reliance on imported machinery. Putin tossed that out the window. He said, we don't know how to drill for oil. Fine. We'll buy the machines from America. We'll buy the machines from countries like that. So they did. And so, but then they sold the oil and they integrated with Western finance. And then Putin took that money and he plowed it into the big cities like Moscow, especially, and then partly St. Petersburg, which is why there's a lot of wealth in Moscow, even if it still looks ugly. There's still, there's a lot of rich people in Moscow. Russia is incredibly unequal. You know, the oligarchs, they're famous, blah, blah, blah. The other thing Putin did, which was really good for Russia, which was focus on health. So he said, this country's full of alcoholics. We're going to crack down alcohol. Now that crackdown did not entirely succeed, but it did make some headway. So Russian alcoholism is still higher than in the West but it has decreased from where it was in the nineties. Of course, having a better economy helps with that too, because people are less driven to despair, blah, blah, blah. He also cracked down on murder. Russia's murder rate reached uh, a murder rate of 30. 
for comparison, America's murder rate during our most murder years topped out at around 10. So Russia during the 90s was three times as dangerous as America has ever been. And Russia during the 90s was far more dangerous than cities like Philadelphia, right? Or Chicago, cities that you think of as being these dangerous cities. What leads to crime increase like that? I don't know. Social breakdown, alcoholism, just general chaos, breakdown of authority. Got it. Just general opportunism, despair, nihilism. Who knows, right? The fact that in Russia, you could always get away. Like it was a big city. It was a big country that couldn't track you very well. So digital tracking of people, uh, digital surveillance has actually cut down on crime a lot, I think. But in the 90s, th there's this famous video. Have you ever seen the comedy routine called The Machine? No, I haven't seen it. Right. So an American frat boy goes to Russia to party in the 90s. And he hangs out and he meets some Russian mafia guys and starts drinking with them. And they're like, okay, you're in our group. You're with us. He says, I'm the machine. Like, and, and they call him the machine. And then together they go around robbing trains and they become train robbers. And they, he just joins the Russian. And then when he's done with it, he just walks away, right? He, he doesn't stay in the Russian mafia. He just joins it and walks away. They're like these bandits, right? It's the old Russian mafia were, were, was much more traditional. You had to be part of the family. You get the tattoos and all the stuff. It was like the Yakuza or the Cosa Nostra or whatever. But then the, uh, the, the bandits in the 90s, they called, you could call them mafia, but really they're just gangs, right? So he joined a Russian gang and he robbed trains as this frat boy. And then he went back and like did a stand-up comedy routine about it. And it's freaking hilarious. So watch just YouTube the machine and watch this dude talk about his experiences in 90s Russia. It was nuts. There was just total breakdown of social order. Anyway, under Putin, things decreased a lot. Now, in my post about Russia, I note that the murder rate didn't improve nearly as much as people think. So Russia is still a more dangerous country than America on average, right? If, obviously, if you're in a really bad neighborhood in America, it's more dangerous. But if you're in a bad neighborhood in Russia, it's more dangerous too. So Americans just assume that because they think Russia is just all white people and they think this makes crime low. Russia is pretty damn high crime. It's like culture matters a lot, guys. Yeah, so, so Russia's murder, like Moscow is the safest place in Russia. It's got guards everywhere. It's got universal video surveillance. It's still, according to, like, if by, by sort of independent estimates, it still probably has a higher murder rate than New York, the New York City. And then Russian outlying areas and suburbs are far more violent. So Russia adheres to the typical European pattern of the inner cities safer than the suburbs. Where in America, we think of it as the opposite. We think the inner cities dangerous and the suburbs are safe. But Russia is the opposite. Just like most of Europe, you'll find the dangerous parts are in the suburbs. You know, the out of sight, out of mind, they push the poverty to the edges of town. That's always been the European way. And Russia does this too. But then the suburbs of Russia are like really dangerous. There's still a lot of just mugging and murder and alcoholism and stuff like that. It's still very dysfunctional in Russia. But Putin improved things. He just didn't improve stuff as much as people think, as much as he claims. But he did create some improvement from the 90s. So I would, Russia did not catch up to the West or even close under Putin, but it did recover somewhat in some ways it recovered fully, in some ways it recovered partially from the 90s, from the devastation of the 90s. And that's what Putin gets credit for. Is it fair to say that the sanctions that we imposed because of the, the war have not been super effective and that Russia's economy is surprisingly held up, you know, moderately okay, and it's also brought them a little bit closer to China? Or what's the read on the effect of the sanctions? Right. So, so sanctions have been effective for a few things, but after in the first year, they were pretty effective. And then after that, Russia figured out ways around them. 
And the main way around sanctions in terms of importing stuff from Europe, especially Germany, is to import it through third countries. So import stuff through Kazakhstan, import stuff through Armenia, import stuff through wherever. So German companies that want to sell to Russia machinery, right? German companies will simply sell it to a middleman in Armenia or Kazakhstan. And those people sell it onto Russia. So they've been able to maintain a lot of their machinery imports that way. And they've increased imports from China, although that's less substitutable than you might think, because you have to basically, like the parts don't fit for the Chinese parts don't fit. So you can import like whole machines. So also Chinese companies are making stuff for Russia, but some of them are scared of sanctions. And America's thinking of sanctioning the Chinese companies that make stuff for Russia. But China has sort of plugged a lot of that hole financially they found ways around the sanctions. Um, basically, we cut them off from banking. Um, that was the first time we ever used sanctions like this, so we didn't really know what it was gonna do. <laughs> but the, the, the short answer is that if someone, if you wanna, if Russia has money to pay and people wanna get paid, then that's gonna happen. The, the bad news for Russia is oil prices. So oil prices spiked after the Ukraine war and that really buoyed Russia's export revenue, right? Because um, they sell oil. That is collapsing. Oil. Revenues are way down because oil prices are way down. And of course, gas revenue is way down because gas to Europe got cut off. There was the pipeline bombing, plus just boycotts of Russian gas, things like that, uh, which is hurting European industry, but is also hurting Russia. Like Russia is getting less stuff. Russia is increasing defense manufacturing, which if you value a tank at the, what the Russians pay for it, then that can give your economy a boost. But look at interest rates in Russia. Interest rates are in the double digits. I don't even remember, 18%. It's really high. And unemployment in Russia is low because people are being sent to the front, right? People are being sent to fight in the war and because a lot of people left Russia. So, so there's this massive labor shortage because people left Russia and because people are getting sent to the front, because people are being shoved into defense plants, blah, blah, blah. Inflation is really, is high in Russia. And Tucker said, there's no inflation here in Russia. Yes, there is. It's much higher than America. It's higher than American, American inflation was a year or two years ago when our inflation was actually high. Like it's, inflation's high in Russia, even with 18% interest rates, right? And so, so Russia's economy, it's convert, it's trying to convert to a wartime centrally planned economy around defense. It is not having an amazing success at that. It's doing some things. They still have a lot of old Soviet stuff. They can make ammo and they can make tank. A lot of their manufacturing is actually refurbishing old Soviet stuff. So if you, so the Soviet Union built amounts of tanks, artillery, and ammo that just are absolutely incomprehensible. Like most of the ammo and tanks and stuff in the world was like Soviet. Well, maybe not most, but like maybe a majority. They just had these vast fields of tanks and these vast fields of artillery launchers and these vast fields of ammunition, right? Some of the ammunition is still good. The tanks and the artillery are degrading. A lot of these are stored outside or in unheated places in the winter. They got corrosion from the snow, things like that. So what do you do? You refurbish them. So you grab these old shitty rusting Soviet tanks, you pull them to a tank factory, but a Earl Vagonzavod or whatever the hell it's called. And then you pull it to that factory and then you refurbish it. It's a lot easier than making a new tank. And you have all these tanks sort of half built already. So their defense manufacturing is getting a big boost from the fact that you have some shitty old tank and then you say, we made a tank and then you value that tank at the price of a tank, right? Even though you refurbish some old Soviet shitty stuff. So that's in the mix. That's somewhere in the mix too. But basically sanctions are not going to crush Russia. Sanctions 
Sorry, hold, hold on one sec. Had the window open, a crazy person was screaming in the street, which you'll also see in Russia, but Tucker will claim that you won't. Uh, but anyway, but you won't see that in, in Japan because they have involuntary commitment. So if you scream in the street, Japan will toss you in an insane asylum like we used to before the 70s. Wow. Anyway, Russia's economy is not doing great. Honestly, they're also lying about stuff. I don't want to. Yeah. Yes, they lie a little bit. They're not going to grow much. You said Putin's impact is overrated on the, on the country. Has, has Russia always been overrated as a threat to the U.S.? And it's always been kind of a middling economy or country, not, not re a real grave threat? Or... Well, here, let me to that, let me ask you a question. Suppose you see two animals on the street. One is someone's pet pit bull. And the pit bull's just sitting there being nice, being a little doggo, just like chilling on the side of the street. And the other is a raccoon that's like rabid and snarling and biting everybody. Which of those is more dangerous to you? Which are you more scared of on the street? The raccoon, the rabid raccoon or the pet pit bull? It's a good question. The, the raccoon might be more likely to attack even though the pit bull is stronger. Is that, is that the comparison basically? Yes. So before 2014, we had... We, when I say we, I mean, especially Germany, but much of the world, even America to some extent, we had lulled ourselves into thinking that Putin's Russia was a pet pit bull. It was mean. It would like do some little frozen conflicts. They invaded Georgia, but it was like they didn't conquer Georgia. They just took like created a frozen conflict with some little enclave in Georgia. Basically, they didn't look particularly like aggressive on the international stage to a lot of people. People thought Putin will just sit there, the Sphinx of the Kremlin and like just do his own thing. Sort of like Erdogan has been. They basically thought of Putin as like an Erdogan type of guy. Erdogan's very cagey. He'll get involved in some proxy wars, but he'll just primarily just sit there and like Turkey does his own thing and like hangs out by itself. They thought Putin was that. He wasn't. He wanted to restore the Russian empire. They didn't predict that. He turned out to be, but then also they, Russian and Soviet propaganda about how good their military tech was really exaggerated how good their military tech was. They really underperformed in the war relative to how we thought they were. Now, that being said, there's a thing that happens when you fight a war for many years, which is that you learn how to fight. The Ukrainians learn how to fight from fighting Russia for years. Russia is learning how to fight now. Their drone warfare has massively improved. They are now better at drone warfare than we are, I'm sure. That doesn't mean they have better equipment. We may have still better equipment, but they have more tricks up their sleeve. They have more training. This is why, like in the early days of World War II, Japanese destroyers and cruisers kicked the shit out of their American rivals because they had been very practiced at fighting at night. Also, they had better torpedoes, but they were practiced at fighting at night, and Americans had no idea how to fight. We hadn't fought. They had fought. They had experience. Experience does a lot for you. And Russia's getting experience in land warfare that the Western Europe is not getting. Germany and France have the good equipment on paper. Even Denmark does. UK has good equipment on paper. Poland has good equipment on paper, but they don't have, they don't know how to fight because they're not fighting. Fighting teaches you how to fight. And Russia is learning how to fight. So Russia used all these old Soviet tactics. They didn't work. It used all this old Soviet equipment. It wasn't very good. Russia has now learning how to use drones in large quantities and how to use mines to basically make areas impassable. They have crappier like anti-tank missiles, anti-vehicle missiles, like the little shoulder mounted, like modern bazooka stuff, like a javelin or n-law. We have those. Russia has crappier ones than we do, 
but they're making them work. They're figuring out tactics to use them to effectively destroy armored vehicles. So, so Russia's learning, especially about drones. If you think you know how important drones are going to be to the future of warfare, you're wrong. They're more. However important you think they're going to be, they're much more than you think they're going to be, or that I, than I think they're going to be. They're more important than I think they're going to be. Drones are everything. Drones are going to be it. Of course, there will be anti-drone things, guns, lasers, blah, blah, that will be very important. Those things will eventually also be mounted on drones. Drones are going to be it. The age of like humans dominating the like front, front lines of the battlefield, of, like a, a man with a gun, that's the, like, the dominant thing on the front line of the battlefield. That's drawing to a sunset. We are in the sunset days of that. Also, the days of armored vehicles charging ahead, punching through lines like the Blitzkrieg, whatever. We're in the final days of that. And we're probably just past that right now. We're past the heyday of the armored vehicle. We're almost past the heyday of the guy with the gun. That You know, all the, the videos that I, I got, people got really mad at me for sharing a video of like a little toy drone chasing around and killing a Russian soldier. It chases him around the field. and He's like, ah, help. And the drone blows him up. It's not gory, but it's viscerally terrifying. The drone is being piloted remotely. It's not a robot yet. It's a remote airplane. It's not a robot yet. It will be autonomous within 10 years. AI is going to be doing this. And, and everyone knows that's what it's going to look like to watch AIs kill humans on the battlefield. We will take flotillas of drones, hundreds of thousands, blackening the skies of these insanely cheap little manufactured drones with an explosive strap to it. That drone is a smart bullet, you know, able to go for incredibly long distances on modern batteries, on modern, I, don't, I doubt they'll be solar powered, but they'll be, they won't, they're not that big, but they'll have batteries. So they'll be able to go really far and blow themselves up and kill one human, two humans, three humans, or one tank, one vehicle, one truck. These little toys will blacken the skies. And you won't be able to shoot them down. I mean, just try taking your gun and like shooting. Imagine it's like the birds from Hitchcock's The Birds, right? That's the future of warfare. And I will note that the battery industry and the drone industry are both controlled by China. Hmm. And everyone who thinks like America will dominate China in warfare because we've got all these fancy, like expensive aircraft carriers and super fast F-22 stealthy jets and like Tomahawk missiles, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Even if we could produce enough of that to like keep up with China. They don't understand how important drones are going to be. And that China makes all the drones. China makes all the batteries. Anduril and Skydio are a drop in the bucket. And they know this. Anduril and Skydio know this. They know we're insanely behind. But I don't think that the average American understands this. I don't think the average American understands how, how important drones are going to be for warfare, already are, and going to just be more for warfare, or how behind America is in this technology. It's like not being able to make guns in World War I. It's like not being able to make tanks in World War II. It's like not being able to make fricking chariots in the Bronze Age. I don't know. The dominant war tech of the modern age, we do not make. China makes it all, almost all. And the batteries, China makes those. They are made in China. And the components of them are made in China. And we should be absolutely fucking flipping out about this, but we're not because we're stupid. We are collectively stupid. There are smart people in our nation, but they work at cross purposes and are isolated and have their own little intellectual feuds and blah, blah, blah. Or sometimes they're just paid by the Russians or more, actually more often they're paid by the Chinese because they're looking for Chinese markets, or whatever. So we're in big 
deep shit. And, and Russia can't really produce a lot of stuff on its own, but it knows how to fight now. And the European countries don't know how to fight. So hopefully the Poles and the Finns and all those people are like learning from sending like guys to Ukraine to watch the battlefield and see what happens on the battlefield. Right. But they're like, Russia's advantage over them will be more short lived than it will be over the Germans and the French. Like Russia will like if Russia fought Germany and France today, Germany and France have better equipment and like more people, but Russia would temporarily win because they know they understand how to fight on a modern battlefield. And the French and Germans would go, Oh no. And get their ass kicked for like a couple months, maybe a year before they, they learned how to fight. And it would be, it would go poorly for them. Just like the Russians got their ass kicked for like a year before they sort of learned how to fight. And still, they're not great at taking territory, but they've learned how to fight defensively. Defensive fighting is more effective. We're in a defensive age, but that's going too far afield. The point is that the Russians were less dangerous than we thought, because we're less powerful than we thought, but they're getting more powerful again now because of experience. So they were less powerful than we thought, but they were a lot more aggressive than we thought. We did not think that Putin would take a $20,000 per capita GDP and like a halfway decent military, we did not think he would take this out for a spin by trying to conquer Europe. We didn't think he would do that. And he would do that. Guess what? He is that bold. Putin the bold, except he never comes out of his bunker. But he's certainly bold with sort of playing the game of risk. He's willing to sacrifice a lot of his pieces and make big gambits. And so that's why he was more dangerous. We didn't understand that his goal was really reviving and restoring the Russian empire. Now we know. In, in some ways, the ec economics or the tr sort of the transition of how great Russia is was overrated, but the threat in some ways was also underrated. Right. That's a, a good description. We'll, we'll, let's end on that. You also hinted at your sort of great Cold War post that you had. We'll do another another episode on that, on that at some point in terms of why, why 2024 could be a sort of resurgence of that or a next evolution of that. But Noah, this was a great deep dive on Russia and Putin and Tucker. And as always, until next time. Until next time. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at terpentine.co, and let's partner together. 